Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Inside the Hive. I'm your host, Nick Bilton. I have another very special midweek treat for you this week. Uh, The show you're about to listen to was recorded live at the Vanity Fair New Establishment Summit last week in Los Angeles. And the guests that will be actually taking over the podcast to do this interview are none other than the award-winning stand-up comedian and creator of the show, Nanette, Hannah Gadsby. If you have not seen Nanette on Netflix, you have to watch it. It is an incredible, incredible show. Uh, And she is being interviewed by social activist and contributing editor of Vanity Fair, Monica Lewinsky. What they're going to be talking about is what it's like to deal with trauma and the public eye, about comedy, about social media, social activism, and the landscape that the world finds itself in today. So stick around. It's going to be a great show. Thanks. Thank you. Oh, people are coming back. They left with the birds. protest. Um, Hi, Hannah. Hello, Monica. (laughs) This is a natural conversation. Exactly. Um, Thank you so much for being here. No, seriously, but thank you so much for being here with us at the Vanity Fair New Establishment Summit. Um, Well, thank you, too. Like, that's, you're not obliged. I thank you. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Very generous. Huge fan. This is is all we'll do for half an hour. (laughs) In fact, I'll just start tweeting, so. um, But I'd like to kick off our chat with a couple quotes. Um, There might be a few people here today who, surprisingly, have not yet seen your stand-up special, Nanette, on Netflix. Um, I technically haven't seen it. Uh, Okay. Yeah, I should, yeah, thank you. Thanks for the, I'll put it on my- No, I can understand that. I I have a hard time watching myself on, on, Well, I feel like I know it. I think I know the twists. Right. Um, So I thought that I would actually share a quote from um, an article in The New Yorker that sort of describes your show. And it is, in the course of the hour-long set, which was filmed at the Sydney Opera House, Nanette transforms into a commentary on comedy itself, on what it conceals, and on how it can force the marginalized to partake in their own humiliation. Gadsby, who once considered Bill Cosby her favorite comedian, now plans to quit comedy altogether, she says, because she can't bring herself to participate in the humiliation anymore. 
end quote. And there's another quote, which uh, is from me, that hasn't been published anywhere yet. <laughs> and basically, this is what I told everybody that I knew after I was privileged to see your show over the summer. And that was that I have never gone to a stand-up comedy show and bawled my eyes out as much as I did. And that given my history, that was pretty surprising. <laughs> So, um, just, you know, kind of opening up the conversation, I want to know, um, you have been beloved in Australia and New Zealand for many years now, and what's it been like to become globally loved for what you've brought into the world, and how have you coped with it? Um, yeah, look, I, I'm, I'm unable to process it, to be honest, and, you know, I find it funny now that I'm, I'm in the, in the you know, awareness of uh, people in the US. Um, and I keep hearing that I disqualify from being able to call myself a successful comedian because they haven't heard of me before, um, which I love. I love being in, you know, told that my <laughs> invisibility to someone who refuses to engage in another culture is my fault. That's fun. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I think that's what's given me the, the, the ability to, to make the impact that I have, you know, in a much bigger audience in the way that I have, is because that I've almost, you know, because people, you know, I've, it looks like I've, 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 I've emerged fully formed, like Venus. Just like a fully formed, you know, at a moment, and it's my first step, and it's not. I, there's 10 years of, of graph that went behind it, but, you know, it does look like that I've come out of, of, of nowhere. Um, but the attention I'm getting is, look, I, I find it uncomfortable. Um, I wrote a show pretty much from the, from the pain that being invisible to the world I was born into caused me. Um, and I'm not, I don't have, I don't have the skill set or the sense of entitlement that comes with being seen so thoroughly as I currently am. You know, I'll get there. Like, I, you know, it feels nice on some levels, but also very foreign and quite, I feel like it's some discomfort with it. I think it's interesting because I know while very different circumstances, um, I came to understand some of the, my own experiences, almost from an energetic perspective of, if you think about thoughts and feelings and emotions being an energy which can be directed towards you that to sort of go from a certain amount of exposure to people's thoughts to suddenly many people's thoughts, it can be destabilizing in some way to just the experience, I think, in, in life. At least that's, that's what it was for me, so. I'm surprised at the overwhelming positivity of the response to my Yeah, work. I didn't have that. <laughs> but I am very glad that yours is positive as it, as it should be. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, my shame, the shame that informed my experience was something 
that I endured, you know, on my own and was more of a, a culturally, a cultural infection that I was given. You know, it was a person, it was a, I was shamed by a world who didn't see me. Mm-hmm. You were shamed visibly by a world who saw you and that you were, your shame in some ways, was public property. But in, yes, 100%, but I think at the same time, I was both visible and invisible. Oh, yes. Right? Yeah. So, um, but, but equally... The, bit, the parts of you that were denied visibility were those parts that denied people's responsibility to, to consider you worthy of their empathy or consideration. That's an active, active choice with the stories we write about people we collectively, on some level, decide uh, our problem. Mm-hmm. We do, we, we do this a lot. Not you and I. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, um, but, you know, one of the things you do in Nanette is um, you talk openly about how you manipulate the audience. So it's very meta and you kind of break the fourth wall um, and you basically, you ask the audience to observe reactions, their own reactions to you telling your stories of trauma and then kind of make them sit in it. So I think, um, you know, what, one of the things too, which I think is so brilliant about you and the show and what you do there is, uh, I guess what I kind of came to call the Hannah hangover, <laughs> which is, in, and anybody who's seen this here will know exactly what I'm talking about, which is it, for at least a week after I saw the show, I would find myself in conversation, zoning out, um, or just even by myself, and I would be reliving this sort of moment of transformation, which you created uh, for me on stage. And, uh, and I think that was that, Hannah Hangover, um, but, I, but we're going gonna, gonna to throw to a clip. <laughs> Good Did throw. I do that well? Good throw. Um, I just learned that today. Uh, so I'm going to throw to a clip of Hannah's Nanette. So Not the whole thing. Not, <laughs> although, <laughs> I'm not sure. I, I do think I have to quit comedy, though. And seriously, uh, and it's probably not the forum to make such an announcement, is it? <laughs> Um, in the middle of a comedy show, but I have been questioning, you know, this whole comedy thing. I don't, I don't feel very comfortable in it anymore. Um, you know, over the past year I've been questioning it and reassessing, and I think it's healthy for an adult human to take stock, pause, and reassess. Uh, and when I first started doing the comedy over a decade ago, my favourite comedian was Bill Cosby. There you go. It's very healthy to reassess, isn't it? <laughs> and I, I've built a career out of self-deprecating humour. That's what I've built my career on. And I don't want to do that anymore. Because do you understand? <laughs> do you understand what self-deprecation means when it comes from somebody who already exists in the margins? It's not humility. It's humiliation. I put myself down in order to speak, in order to seek permission to speak. 
And I simply will not do that anymore, not to myself or anybody who identifies with me. I do owe uh, something to Bill Cosby in that his work really gave me confidence to, to know that my slow cadence is, mm. is, you know, acceptable in comedy. You know, comedy can be very fast. The pressure to really impress people with your wit quick. <sighs> right. So, but... Oh, no, I don't want to talk about him anymore. <laughs> Wait, did you, okay, but so mentioning Bill Cosby, did you, when did you start writing Nanette and did the sort of the cultural landscape that began shifting in the last year or maybe even last two years, did that have an impact on how you were writing about things or um, how you were thinking about things or had to change things at all? I, I mean, I can only realize it in, understand it in hindsight, but I think I was reacting to a, a landscape that, you know, has activated a lot of different people um, to express their frustrations in, in ways that have become a movement. Mm -hmm. Like, I think I'm just, you know, you know, I was deeply frustrated with, you know, a lot of this show was written from a place where I, you know, felt like I wanted to say something constructive. I wanted to undo damage. I felt like I'd participated in, in and, and stuff like that. But a lot of it was also driven by professional jealousy. You know, like I was frustrated by the rise of mediocrity that, that was, you know, happening around me. There. You know, and I, I, don't, I try not to say it with arrogance, although I do believe firmly, I was so much better than those guys who were getting breaks because they're just forgiven for their mediocrity because people trust. You know, when people close their eyes and are asked to think of a comedian, more often than not, they just take their idea of a doctor and take off his, mm -hmm. you know, his suit and put on jeans and a T-shirt and he's the same guy. Same guy. <laughs> you know, so as soon as a white, straight white guy walks on stage, people are conditioned to, to trust them to take care of their comedic needs. Mm -hmm. and, and that trust has been betrayed yeah, that's an understatement. <laughs> it honestly has, because by just trusting, you know, these, there's so many comedians who, who think that, you know, uh, it is their place to not consider what they're saying. And the only thing that they need to answer to are the laughs they're getting. That's the justification. They, all the justification they need to know that they, they are doing this well. They are, they are being good comedians because people laugh at them. But I, I happen to believe that just because an audience laughs doesn't mean it's funny. It, it, you know, it, it's not actually a good reason. Uh, you know, it's not a good measure of, of, right. of so, what you're saying. Yeah. You know, the, or the worth of what you're right. saying, because you you can be infected by those you sit in, uh, you sit amongst. An audience can be infected by the by other people's laughing, and it's often laughter comes from discomfort. You know, uh, and often people, when particularly when jokes are, are aimed at those that tell the jokes, 
think of as less, punching down as we call it, when those jokes get laughs, what you're hearing is not uh, that your joke is funny, but that those people who agree with you feel, feel their inhumanity is justified. They hear a stereotype that they believe and invest in and think of as reason to think someone else is less, is reasonable because other people are laughing at these stereotypes. Mm -hmm. And so as a person, when I first started you know, performing, I was horrified just by how many comics used, used rape as a subject matter in their, in their material. And these you know, are young men, often. Um, and it was the most, the most horrific use of that subject was a throwaway punchline. So something they'd tag onto the end of an idea. And I would have to then perform to the same audience that laughed at, at something, laughed at not just a subject matter, but at a joke that made, that failed to make rape the target of our laughter. So people were using it as the shock, as a, as a, as a tool to create tension, because people were like, oh, this is, you know, is a thing we know to feel afraid of talking about in public spaces. Like, it's not something we're, we're able, you know, we have a great framework to talk about in public. So you, as soon as a comedian brings it up, people are automatically tense. As soon as you make people tense, it's so easy to make them laugh. And that was the only reason they spoke about it. They didn't use it because they thought, hey, I want to turn rape culture on its head because they didn't even know rape had a culture. They refused to acknowledge that the tension that people feel when they bring it up is a reflection of not their skill as a, com a comedian, mm. but a reflection of the unspoken and un, you know, unacknowledged damage yeah. that these kinds of assault calls in our community. Like there's... This is, sorry to interrupt, but this is sort of brings up for me um, a question I had or an experience kind of... I needed connected. to be interrupted. No, no. No, I did, because... Believe me, there are people here one. going, aren't you interrupt? Um, no, it was good. But it was good. I... I need a breath. <laughs> I, um, so I, I saw your show uh, in the Soho Playhouse over the summer, and then I've also watched it, watched the Netflix special. And so one of the things that you do in Nanette is you kind of take people through stories as a joke, and then later on, you take them back through the same story with a more uh, traumatic reality connected to it. And so, sorry, this is, might be a bit of a spoiler alert, but um, I was wondering, especially when I watched the second time, you, well, there's a, a very important story in your show around what happened to you at a bus stop one night. And when I saw it live the first time, I laughed with everyone else and I cried with everyone else when you talked about what had really happened and how you were assaulted. Um, when I saw it the second time, what came up for me was I wondered what it was like for you the first time or maybe at the Sydney Opera House with a huge packed house 
what it was like for you the first time you told the first part of the story where it was kind of where you were joking about it and you heard people laugh at your trauma it's um it's an interesting one because that story um is one that i've always held as two distinct stories I have two versions that I hold as coherent narratives that don't feel like they're the same story, even though I've created them around the same thing. So I've done this, I've done this, and that's what drove me to do this, you know, to, to tell both sides of the story, was the, the challenge for me to be able to say, could I tell this story, the version of the story that I see no humour in, that I can only triggers, you know, pain and trauma, can I share that with an audience and win at comedy? And, the, and I knew I couldn't. I knew that I, the only way I could share the story uh, in a way was to make it funny and just tell it in a way that's just basically going, oh, look how stupid, dumb, and dumb, ignorant homophobes are. You know, that was it. And there was no actual violence that there ignorance had, you know you know was put upon me but when i decided that i couldn't tell a story like that and share the actual events that happened to me that made it clear to me that it was a story that is not one people know we can only laugh at story, you know, at, at things that we all understand. So that said to me is like, I've been telling the story and I'm as much to blame for people not understanding stories like this because I have a platform where I can help tell stories that we refuse to listen to. Mm -hmm. And the reason I stopped myself from telling stories that like that is because I felt my first responsibility was to make people laugh. And so in my mind, that then made me think, I am no better at comedy than those that don't consider, mm -hmm. right. you know, everything that they say. Mm -hmm. So I decided, I will say it. So when I tell the first story, no, I don't, I don't think about, because I, I hold it as a distinct. That's interesting. And that also is at the root of, uh, you know, why I was unable to, fully extract the effects of the trauma involved in that mm -hmm. incident. I, I, therapists always say that it, all you need to get rid of, um, you know, the effects of trauma is to find a cohesive narrative to put it into. And I had not just one, but two cohesive narratives. <laughs> and it still had a grip on me. And yeah. the reason I believe is that an individual alone can't can't ex extract the effects of trauma if it's part of its roots uh, are built mm -hmm. into the shame that the world demands you feel about who you are. So I was, I was raised to believe I was less than the person who beat me up. I was, you know, he was a, he was a young, guy i was a you know you know queer fat queer girl i knew i was less important than him but we were both culturally 
conditioned by the same story. And what freed, has freed me from, this, from the trauma, the grips of the trauma, the effects of trauma from that is not the, the, the cohesive narrative, but to understand that both me and that guy were infected by the same story and we were both damaged mm. by that. Right. You know, he was let down as well. Like mm -hmm. he was taught that it, his hate was justified. He was taught that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, by creating a story where I can hang my trauma only worked if it then was heard by the world that I lived in. The world helped hold that trauma because I created a story and a framework that, they, that was acceptable for people to share right. the burden of my, you know, the pain. And when, when the world you live in shares the burden of your pain, you feel safe. And safety, feeling safety in the world is the only thing that can diffuse the pain of trauma. Well, and you did that for me. So um, I know some people may be wondering why we were <laughs> paired. Um, and now I get to throw to a clip again. Um, so I think this will explain things a little. You can... It's bold. Oh, no. Comedy, we're more used to, you know, throwaway jokes about priests being pedophiles and Trump grabbing the pussy. I don't have time for that shit. I don't. Do you know who used to be an uh, easy punchline? Monica Lewinsky. Maybe if comedians had done their job properly and made fun of the man who abused his power, then perhaps we might have had a middle-aged woman with an appropriate amount of experience in the White House. Instead, as we do, a man who openly admitted to sexually assaulting vulnerable young women because he could. So I, um, I want to thank you. I really want to thank you for that. And I've seen um, on social media, actually, I've noticed, even if people don't reference Nanette, that there have been many more people who have referenced um, their regret at having seen me as just a punchline. And I think that that has come from what you put into the world. So I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, so happy that the, that you, you know, it was a, it was a risk, you know, not even, I mean, more so when you were in the room, yeah. but just generally. And you knew, you knew, you oh. knew I was there that oh, night, right? Yeah, I, I, because <laughs> I can't trust that that's what, you know, you know, is something that is constructive for you. Like, I'm, it was how I believed, and I'm so great, I'm so good, I, I, I nailed it. But, um, yeah. yeah, you nailed it, Hannah. <laughs> but, you yeah, know, you when, when we have an easy punchline, we, you know, I think we have to acknowledge that we're dehumanizing actual human beings. And I, I just, I don't want, you know, I, this is what people think will ruin comedy. You know, but yeah. um, we'll cope. <laughs> you know, we fill the gaps. That's what we do as humans. It's like, oh, something's missing. We'll make something. Bird, the birds, like people are like, <laughs> we need a new way to not walk. And, 
we, we fill gaps. It's, it was interesting for me because I, I didn't know if you knew I was in the audience, but I knew I was going to get to meet you after. And um, walking to your dressing room, I was actually thinking about what would happen after and my fear that I'd walk out of your dressing room after meeting you go, oh fuck, now I have to change my show. <laughs> like, that I somehow would have been a disappointment of oh, right. that. Oh right, I'm so, not giving that um, one any more airspace. So, uh, but it was... Um, no, it was, it was a real... It, it, was, was, a real, it was a nice moment. It was, a, it was an amazing moment for me. Um, and, and as somebody who, you know, was, it was a genuine attempt to make, you know, to extend an apology from a, an, a, an art form that profited off shaming you. Like, yeah. you know, and there are so many people like that. Uh, Amy Winehouse is another example mm -hmm. of, you know, a person we found so easily, easy to laugh at in the midst of witnessing, you know, something quite devastating, uh, you know, and we're, we, we keep doing this and we have to work out ways, you know. But I think your show is actually going to, is, is really going to change that. I yeah. think it already has. I need to, I need to be less serious though. I really. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, less serious. So would you, um, would you, this is kind of random, you know, fire question. Would you host Saturday Night Live if you were asked? That would be less serious. Yeah, it's, it's not a real question because I won't be asked. <laughs> Why do you think you wouldn't be asked? I am not a friend of, of, oh, okay. of them. All right. <laughs> Next question. They're, they're, not, um, they're, not, they're not so fond of my work. Really? Yeah, that's fine. No. We'll, we'll all cope. <laughs> Plus, I think I'm a bit slow for live TV. Okay. Yeah, see, that did it. <laughs> Um, I, uh, you know, you do something incredible in the show that is one of the parts of Nanette, which stuck with me a lot, and that is sort of your takedown of Picasso. Huh. Yeah, and so really sort of bringing to people's attention or reminding them how in his 40s, Picasso had been with a 17-year-old young woman uh, whom he, I think to quote you, had said, was in her prime at 17. Um, and I, I was really interested to know just kind of the evolution of that place. You have an art history degree, which you talked about. And just yeah. if that, um, if, like, did you have a negative reaction from people the first time you tried out that section of like, oh, can't go after Picasso? Well, not so much. In comedy, the negative reaction to my Picasso gear was born more of, well, this is a bit uppity. Like, it's not... <laughs> It's not a theme often, you know, explored um, in stand-up. So that was more inform, you know, what informed the re resistance of it. But yeah, people don't like, you know, when we demand someone we adore to take responsibility for their actions or for us to take responsibility for elevating toxic, you know, destructive humans into positions of power that deny them any responsibility for the, the uh, you know, their actions. Um, we, we take power as immunity, mm. you know, as, as something that, that not only gives a man power, you know, it gives the right to, 
to diminish the lives of, of other people, actively do that, actively participate in the diminishment of another's humanity. But we also, in doing that, we deny that, that power is taking a toll on their humanity. It's power that makes someone blind to those he wields it over. Power, power is the problem, not, mm -hmm. you know, that people are vulnerable to, to its... So, you, so you're saying that you think anybody who was given power would ultimately end up behaving in a certain set of ways we're all, that... We're all capable of being corrupted mm -hmm. by power, especially when we're not conditioned to recognize power when we have it. That's why often you see people who, you know, feel, you know, find power after having none, mm -hmm. you know, struggle to, you know, extend Everyone is vulnerable to power, especially when they don't recognise it. Uh, and I think power is something we need to, to fear more than we desire. You know, it's a, it, it's a, it should be seen as a, something with the, that is a responsibility, that is a burden. Then when we ask people to step away from their power, they, they, they need to feel that it's, an, it's, a, it's not an attack it's, you know, it's help, like relieving someone of a burden instead of taking something they believe they have a right to. Interesting. Like it's, we put people in power so that we don't, you know, we can live in a larger community than mm -hmm. an individual is capable right. of administrating. Sure. We need it. We need people to have power. Yeah. But those people need to be relieved of that burden if it's fucking them over. And on that note, with that swear word, very sadly, we are out of time. I like to ruin things at the end. <laughs> Always good to end with the fucking, so. Yeah. <laughs> oh God, please cut that from the tape. Oh shit, oh shit. Oh, no. Okay, on that note, Old Hannah, school comedy there, old school comedy. <laughs> Please, my brother's here. Please tell him I am funny. I would be really. I, I think he so. has enough to judge that. <laughs> no, oh, but Hannah, thank you so much. Oh no, much. thank you, and thank you, I everybody. Know. Thanks, everybody. Thanks to my guests this week, Hannah Gadsby and Monica Lewinsky. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Radio.com, or anywhere else that you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work, my editors at Manly Fair, and thank you to you, the listener. I will see you all in a few days for another great podcast. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts.